Hello and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast from Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We're so glad you've tuned in today. Our prayer as you listen is that you'll be encouraged and built up in your walk with Jesus as we study God's Word together. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's jump right in. We're going to be uh, called, we call this series together, A King Like No Other. So before we get to there, uh, before we get to reading that, we call this series A King Like No Other. And what we are going to be seeing is one of Matthew's main themes in his gospel is the kingship, kingship of Jesus, that Jesus is king. And we're going to see that woven through these chapters of Matthew as well. But he's not like a king, like we might think of king. In Canada, our idea of royalty can sometimes be from the British monarchy. We have a queen, name is Queen Elizabeth, but she has very little, if any, really no power over us. She's really more of a figurehead. And that's not the concept of king that we come to when we study the book of Matthew together. The concept of king that we come to is a king who is more like King Kong in my son's world, Trey's world. Uh, my son Trey uh, loves superhero toys, and he got a new toy recently, which was a King Kong toy. Now, his first superhero toy he got was Spider-Man, and when Spider-Man, he got Spider-Man, Spider-Man would beat up every other toy he had. He was the strongest, and then he got an Iron Man toy, and an Iron Man was the strongest and could beat up Spider-Man and everyone else, and then he got a Hulk toy, and that's the one he's holding in the picture. That Hulk toy then was the strongest of all of them. And it's been like that for months until he just recently got a King Kong toy. And Kong, even though he's smaller than Hulk, in Trey's world is the strongest. And usually how the battle starts is Kong, uh, Hulk will start beating up Kong a little bit and then Kong will pick him up and throw him across the room to his death. In Trey's world, Kong is king because Kong is the strongest. He's the most powerful. He has ultimate authority before, above all the other toys that he has. And that is more like the concept of king we come to in the first century. It's more like the game King of the Castle that I played growing up at recess, even though we weren't allowed to. We would play it when the teacher on yard duty wasn't watching us. And when the teacher on yard duty turned around, we'd play King of the Castle. When the yard duty teacher looked at us and walked toward us, we were playing climb, climb up Sunshine Mountain, <laughs> frolicking up the top of the hill. But when the teacher turned, it was no holds barred King of the Castle. And if you're not familiar with that game, the way the game works is every person fights their way to the top. And you will do whatever you can to keep the other person from getting to the top because you want to get to the top. So your friend is running in front of you. You just kick out their feet so they fall. It gets very violent, bloody. If you're playing it right, it gets violent and bloody <laughs> for who makes it to the top. And whoever gets to the top, you get to say those words. I'm the king of the castle. You're the dirty rascal. The problem is most of the time, the person at the top doesn't even get long enough at the top to say those words before someone else comes and knocks them off or picks them up and throws them off the hill to take their place at the top. And that is how much of our world works and has worked throughout history of how kings and kingdoms topple other kings and kingdoms. We're seeing it happen right now in another part of the world. A tyrant who is bent on taking over another nation because he is stronger 
than that nation. It's how our world works. A king is king because that king has ultimate and supreme authority. And their kingdom advances by brute violence and, and, and strength. And if you ever want to defy a king, you stand before a king, you are putting your hands in the life of that king. Because that king could have you killed in an instant in the midst of an argument you have with him. So when we talk about kings, we have to understand that that's the concept of a first century audience, a first century a group of people. When they think in terms of king, they think in terms of someone who has ultimate and complete authority and their kingdom advances by brute force and violence. So when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? That's the framework that Pilate is operating off of. That's what he is concerned with finding out. Are you the king of the Jews? Should I be concerned that you are going to establish a kingdom that is going to try to knock Caesar off the top of the hill? Should I be concerned that you are going to, 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 to rally together an army who's going to, by brute force and violence, attack Rome? That's what he is interested in when he asks that question. And what is very fascinating about the way Jesus answers that question, we're going to see in this passage is he answers that question when Pilate says to him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answers him and says, you have said so. Why is he answering that way? He's answering that way because he's saying to Pilate, yes, I am the king of the Jews, but I am not like the kind of king you think I am. My kingdom is not like any other kingdom. He is a king like no other king. And that's why we've called this series a king like no other. So let's look into it. Matthew 27, starting in verse one, and we're gonna work through this passage this morning. Now, let me ask you before we get there, sorry, the guys at the back are doing a great job. They're on top of it. I just keep going back. I, I want to give a little bit of, gonna build up, not build up, but at least backstory to get to where we are today because we're going to see uh, Jesus being delivered over to Pilate. How do we get to that point? We got to that point when Jesus had his last supper with the disciples. Remember almost a week before he had rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and they crowned him as king. They said, Hosanna in the highest. They thought he was the king coming like Simon Maccabees as they put down the, the, the palm branches. They thought he was going to be like Simon Maccabees and lead a revolt against Rome. They thought he was going to be that kind of king. And so they hailed him as king as he went into Jerusalem. He has the last supper with the disciples and there is Judas at the last supper and sees his moment now to um, betray Jesus. And so he goes, and for 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave, for 30 pieces of silver, he develops this plan with the religious leaders of how they can come arrest Jesus. They want to arrest Jesus. The problem is the crowd had just hailed him as king. And so they're nervous about some kind of revolt that might happen. So they don't want to arrest him in the daytime. So they devise a plan to, to arrest him at nighttime. The problem is, where is he at night? They don't know. And that's where Judas comes in, where Judas is going to lead them exactly to where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so that's what happened. They, they lead, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss the, the, the cohort comes. It says a great many came to arrest Jesus. That great many, historians say, would have been between 600 and 1,000 people. 
This is not a, a small number of people that are coming to arrest Jesus. This was a huge number of people. Why so many people? Because they were afraid of a revolt. They were afraid of a mob uh, resisting the arrest of Jesus. They had just hailed him as king. And so they bring many soldiers because the more soldiers you have, the less likely there is to be a revolt. So as this group comes to arrest Jesus, think of 600 to 1,000 people come to arrest Jesus and what, is the, what do the disciples do? One of them in particular. 600 to 1,000 people come, and there's one disciple who pulls out his sword and is getting ready to fight them all. And in the process of that, slices off the ear of one of the soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. And there's something that Jesus says here in chapter 26 that's going to inform everything that we study in this series. Because when Peter slices off the ear of that soldier and says to, to, to Peter, put away your sword, look at verse of uh, chapter 26, look at verse 53. This is what Jesus says as this happens. He says, put away the sword, verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But this must be, has it go, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So two things there. Number one is we see Matthew telling us that this is how the scriptures have foretold it. We're going to see that theme throughout it, that Jesus knows what's going to happen, and the, and the prophets foretold that this was going to happen as it happened. But there's something even greater going on here that's going to inform what we study, and that is this. At any moment, Jesus could have stopped what was happening to him, but he chose not to. At any moment, he could have called upon 12 legions of angels. A legion is, depending on whether the source you look at, anywhere between 4,000 and 6,000 angels. He could have at any moment called upon, he says, 72,000 angels to come and rescue him. If you read through the Old Testament, you know the damage that one angel can do. At any moment, he could have called upon 72,000 or more angels, and they could have saved him. But he chose not to. And that is going to inform chapters 27 and 28. As we see the events unfold, we are going to see events unfold that at any moment Jesus could have stopped all of the events from happening. He could have called upon angels who could have come and in violence destroyed everyone who was there who was trying to have him killed. But he chose not to. And so the question is why? Why did he choose to not stop this from happening? And we're going to see that answer fleshed out for us for, from Matthew as we study through it together. All right, let's, let's do it now, guys. You can go ahead now. All right, thank you for being on top of that at the back there. Chapter 27, verse 1, when morning came, so here they bring him to Pilate, they deliver him to Pilate. They have charges against him, it says many charges against him. We're going to see that Pilate really is only concerned with one charge. When he's brought before the Sanhedrin, which would have been 71 men, 70 men plus the high priest, and they found him guilty in this kind of a legal trial at 3 a.m. of that night, they found him guilty guilty of blasphemy. They know Pilate's not going to care about that charge of blasphemy. So they, they, can, they, they create other charges to then charge him with. One of those charges is his claim to be king. They know that Pilate will be concerned about that particular charge. And we see that that's the only one that he is 
um, concerned about. Now, Matthew also records this bit right before 27 about Peter denying Jesus. And we have three times that happening just as Jesus said it was going to happen. Now, an interesting study would be to look at what happens to Peter versus what happens to Judas. Why does both of them sin in the midst of this? Why does one end with Peter being restored and the other end with Judas hanging himself? It would be an interesting study beyond the scope of what we're looking at in this series. But if you're with a small group meeting this week, and one of the questions actually wrestles with that very thing. Let's look at 27. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. This is what they wanted. Tells them right at the very beginning of chapter 27. They want him dead And they bound him, they led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, why didn't they just kill him? Why didn't they just kill him themselves? They found him guilty of blasphemy. Why not just stone him right there? They want this to have the semblance of legality. Even though it was an illegal trial, everything that happened up to this point was illegal. Arresting him at night like that was illegal. And yet, they want to have this, have the semblance of legality to discredit Jesus as much as possible. John also tells us that they didn't have the authority to put Jesus to death. And you may think, well, what about Stephen when they stoned him? The difference with Stephen is that was a mob mentality. That was not the result of a judicial system of going through the justice courts to then have him killed. It was just a mob who stoned Stephen. So they, in this time, under Roman rule, the Roman the Romans gave the Jewish leaders a lot of leeway, a lot of power, but one power they did not have was the power to have someone killed. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate because they want this this kind of sentence of guilty to go upon Jesus from the Roman government and so discredit him as much as they can. And so here they are, they're bringing him before Pilate. And then here goes on to say in verse three, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now that, that, that word, that phrasing of changed his mind is good phrasing. The word that Matthew uses here, it's one word in the Greek. It's not the word that is typically used for repentance. There's a word for repentance, and that is not the word he uses. The word that he uses is the word that literally means to change your mind. It means to maybe have some remorse, to feel sorry for what you did, but it's not the word for repentance. So Judas, for whatever reason, he changes his mind. Why did he change his mind? It's very possible that he sees that Jesus is choosing not to use his powers to save himself. And so he does feel remorse. He feels bad for what he's done, but he doesn't bring his sin to Jesus. He brings it to a religious system. And there's a stark difference between those two things. So he brings his sin to the religious Leaders, verse four, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, get lost. We don't care how you feel. Now that phrase, see to it yourself, I want you to keep that phrase in the back of your head because we're gonna see it spoken again, but from the mouth of someone else. Throwing down the the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, and that that is indicative of, frankly, just a lousy leader. You have religious leaders who are put in place to care for the people. At least that should be their intention. Someone comes feeling remorse and they tell him, get lost, see to it yourself. What a poor example of leadership from these religious leaders that Matthew is showing to us here. 
Verse 6, but the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Very convenient that now they're concerned about purity. Now they're concerned about blood money. When they just sentenced Jesus to death illegally. Verse 7, so they took counsel, they brought with them, they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him on whom a price has been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So Matthew telling us again, everything that's happening here is just as the prophet said it was going to happen. Now verse 11 goes on, and you have subtitles, subheadings in, in your Bible. At least most Bibles have subheadings. Those subheadings are not inspired subheadings. They're put there as kind of helpful marker places for us. And if you've been around here for very long or for a few years, you know I don't like this particular heading. Uh, This particular heading is misleading. This particular heading is not giving us the full picture of what's actually going on here. The heading in my Bible says Jesus before Pilate. What we just looked at in in chapter 26 tells us that Jesus is not before Pilate. Pilate's before Jesus. And this is why we've titled it the way way we have of Pilate before Jesus. At any moment, Jesus could have stopped Pilate. Jesus has full authority over Pilate. Pilate thinks he has authority over what's going to happen to Jesus, but he doesn't. And it's a good lesson we can learn from this or a good kind of theological truth we can take from that is no earthly power can determine the destiny of Jesus. And yet, the destiny of every person is determined by what he or she does with Jesus and how we respond to Jesus. And we're going to see Matthew share with us a number of different people who have encounters with Jesus, who their destiny is determined. What happens to them is determined by their response to Jesus. Are you going to worship him as Lord? Are you going to repent and bow before him as Lord? Or are you going to reject him? And what happens to you in the end is determined by our response to Jesus. So think more in terms of kind of the submersive, the the subversive nature of the kingdom of Jesus, the upside down nature of the kingdom of Jesus. This really is Pilate before Jesus. Now Jesus, verse 11 says, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear the many things that they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor, so Pilate was greatly amazed. The, words for, the word for that there is greatly amazed in the sense of in awe and in wonder. This is a positive word that's used here. Pilate sees Jesus and we don't know what leads him to the wonder other than there's something different about this Jesus. And it leads him to wonder and to awe. Are you the king of the Jews? It's the only charge that Pilate is concerned about. It's the only charge he cares about at all. Now, I want you to understand with Pilate, he he politically is in a big dilemma here. One of his roles is to keep the peace with the Jewish people. One of his other roles is to maintain justice and to serve essentially as a judge in the court of justice. So to make just decisions. And these two now things are conflicting for him. 
And he knows that if he does the wrong thing, there's going to be a riot from the Jewish people. And Caesar is not going to be very happy with him. So politically, he's in this dilemma where if he rejects what the Jewish people are, are accusing Jesus of, what he's doing is inciting, he's going to incite a riot or a mob riot. And he's concerned about that. Word will get back to, to Caesar, and he's not going to be happy about that. The Jewish people play up on that. And in John, it tells us that the Jewish people accused him and said, we're going to tell Caesar that you're no friend of Caesar if you don't do what we say we do. They're manipulating Pilate because they know the political situation that he's under. So he's under this dilemma where he's going to come to the conclusion that there's nothing wrong with what Jesus has done. He's going to come to that conclusion, and yet the Jewish people are going to call for his death. So what is he going to do? He's in a lose-lose situation from a political standpoint. Either he does what he believes to be right and true, or he bows to the will of the people to save face. What is he going to do? You know what he's going to do, but that's the dilemma that he is under. Verse 15 goes on. He thinks he's come up with a great solution a solution that's going to protect him. And it's going to be an obvious solution for the crowd of who he's going to let go. There's a practice where uh, he would let go of one prisoner as an act of mercy, as an act of goodwill to the people. And so he thinks, I'm going to use that practice and I'm going to get myself out of this dilemma. I'm going to make the choice easy for them of who they're going to let, let go free. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor, sorry, verse 15 now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Luke tells us he was guilty of murder in an insurrection. So he's an insurrectionist. He's someone who's guilty of murder. And so he's going to be sentenced to death on a cross. Now, there's two other criminals who are going to be next to Jesus on the cross. Tradition says that those two criminals were friends of Barabbas that they were both insurrectionists along with Barabbas. And those three crosses were set up to crucify these three people. Uh, there's a bad translation in the King James that calls him a thief. He's not a simple thief. He was more than that. This person who on the cross ends up repenting, the thief on the cross, he was more than just a simple thief. He was an insurrectionist, most likely. Committed murder as well. These three crosses that were set up were set up for Barabbas and his two cronies, his two friends. So when they, verse 17, when they gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release? Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. If I have suffered, uh, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate knows that they have brought Jesus out of envy. He believes Jesus to have done nothing wrong. His wife has even confirmed that for him. And what is he going to do? It's a good maybe lesson for the men today that when your wives tell you something, listen to it. I expected to hear a bit of an amen from the wives out there, but that's okay. He gets himself into a whole lot of trouble by not listening to his wife here goes on to say, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. That verse alone. I want you to think in terms of Barabbas and Jesus. Think about this. This is why Pilate thought this was going to be foolproof. 
Barabbas was guilty of murder, of insurrection. Barabbas is a name, it means Bar-Abbas. Those two words together, Bar means son of, Abba means father. So this is the choice that Pilate is giving to the people. I'm going to release to you the son of the father or the son of the divine father. I'm going to release to you Barabbas, the son of the father, or Jesus, the son of the father in heaven. Who are you going to choose? Pilate thought the choice was going to be obvious. And yet, the crowd cries out after being worked out by the religious leaders for Jesus to be destroyed. Not just release Barabbas, but also destroy Jesus. The governor, verse 21, said again to them, Which of you, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Why? What evil has he done? They don't even answer him. They just shout louder, crucify him. That question that he asked them is a question that every one of us needs to wrestle with. Pilate says to them, what do you want me to do with Jesus? What am I to do with Jesus? And that is a question we all would do well to answer for ourselves. What am I to do with Jesus? What am I going to do with him? How am I going to respond to him? Every one of us needs to wrestle with that very question. They shout out, release Barabbas. What shall I do with him who's called Christ? Let him be crucified. Not only do they say, let the one who is guilty go free, but crucify the one who is innocent. This is brutal. Don't let the familiarity of this story just wash over you today or this year. This is absolutely horrific. The one who is guilty, let him go free. The one who takes life, let him go free. The one who is completely innocent, who did no wrong, who imparts life, crucify him, destroy him, execute him. It's absolutely horrific. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. This is his worst fear. A riot that starts to begin. Going to get back to Caesar, the peace of Rome that was established through incredible violence, but that peace of Rome is starting to be threatened here as this mob begins to start. This riot was beginning. He took water, he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Where did you hear that before? The very thing that the religious leaders said to Judas, see to it yourselves. Now Pilate says back to them, see to it yourselves, have your way. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. That verse is absolutely chilling. Have Jesus crucified, his blood be upon us. 
what is ironic in the sweetest possible way is how that very statement can be applied to them if they were to take their sin and bring it before Jesus and ask for forgiveness. That the very same people that had Jesus crucified are the very same people that could take that sin, ask for forgiveness, and have his blood applied to them. His blood be put upon them and their sin, and they could experience forgiveness. And we see the apostles doing this, getting ahead of myself, in the book of Acts, as they invite Jewish people to do this very thing. And praise God, we see many taking them up on that and repenting of their sin and turning to Jesus. Let his blood be upon us and on our children. That's a, that's a chilling statement in the context here. Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. They released the one who was guilty, and the one who was innocent is going to take his place on the cross that was set up for him. It says they scourged him. To scourge someone was to take a whip, and it wasn't just a simple whip. It was a whip that was embedded with stone and bone and sometimes little fishing hooks. And it was a whip that a person was tied to a, to a stake in the ground. And the whip would come across their back and then it would stick in and they'd pull it. And it would create stripes on their back. By his stripes, you will be healed. It's a reference to Isaiah. As they would whip him, oftentimes the person that they would whip before being executed on the cross Oftentimes, not often, I don't know if it was often, but sometimes that person would die in the scourging. It was so horrific. And so they scourged him. They tied him to this snake. They took a whip embedded with stone and bone and hooks and began to stripe his back. As we reflect on not just the brutality of what happened, but why he would allow this to happen to him, knowing that after that first whip he received, he could have stopped it. And yet he continued to let them do it. Why would he do that? And what we see with Barabbas is something that we need to understand is true for us the same. That Jesus on the cross took the place of Barabbas, that Barabbas was the sinner. And yet Jesus took the place of the sinner on the cross. Jesus took what was rightfully, what was should have been for Barabbas. And he does the same thing for us. The Bible says every one of us are sinners. Every one of us are guilty of death because of our sin. But while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. On the cross, that Barabbas was meant to be on. He deserved the death that Jesus took for him. And he does the same thing for us. That Jesus was our substitute on the cross. That the death we deserved, he took so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that his blood could be upon us. That we could be forgiven 
and set free. So why would Jesus allow this to happen? It was in love for you. It was in love for this world, this broken world that was desperately in need of reconciliation with the Father. And so he allowed this to happen for us. And this question that Pilate asks the religious leaders is a question I want to finish by asking you today. What are you going to do with Jesus? What am I to do with Jesus? There is no question that Jesus walked on this earth. Uh, any theory that comes up with Jesus never existed is a theory that's very quickly dismissed by any serious historian. Every historian knows there was a man named Jesus who walked on this earth. And so what are we going to do with him? And C.S. Lewis has a great kind of, it's called a trifecta. He says there's only three options we have when it comes to Jesus. Either he's a liar, that he completely lied about everything. He deceived every one of his followers to follow him, even though he wasn't really who he said he was. Or he was a lunatic. There was something wrong with his head. He thought he was those things, but he wasn't. Or he was Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. There really are no other options when it comes to what we do with Jesus. Either we reject him as a liar, or we reject him as a lunatic, or we accept him as who he says he is, as the Lord, as the one who is king over all, as the one who came and allowed this to happen to him, to be crucified to a Roman cross, his blood shed so you can be forgiven, so you can know a relationship with the Father in heaven through what he has done for you. So what am I to do with Jesus? I pray that you wrestle with that question. If you haven't yet wrestled with that question, I pray this week would be a week that you seriously delve into that question. If you haven't already of what you are going to do with Jesus. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you in this Easter season, especially when we can look back into these narratives and see what it was that Jesus allowed to happen to himself, that at any moment he could have stopped it and yet he allowed it to continue, knowing what it would accomplish for us. Knowing that by what would happen to him would accomplish for us forgiveness and relationship with you. We thank you for the love, the incredible love that he has shown to us on the cross, the marvelous, wonderful love that Jesus has shown to us on the cross. And I pray if there's anyone here, anyone joined with us through YouTube, anyone who's here in person, if they have not wrestled with that question of what they are going to do with Jesus, I pray that this would be a day, this would be a week that they wrestle with that question in a serious way. And Father, I thank you for bringing me to that place of, in my life, of once when I rejected Jesus of opening my eyes to see the truth of who he was. And the sweetness of knowing you in relationship. 
through what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Father, I pray that we would be a church, a church family that continues to live in light of what Jesus has accomplished for us, that we wouldn't live trying to earn your favor, but understand that favor is found by submitting our lives to you and that joy is found by living for you in this world. But God, today I pray that we would marvel and be in awe as we have reflected on the brutal nature of what Jesus has allowed to happen to him during his time on this earth, that we would respond in worship, that we would respond with marvel and wonder and joy at how marvelous and how wonderful the love that he has shown to us on that cross. Let's marvel afresh today. May we together as a church marvel afresh at your goodness and your love toward us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless.